Romans chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. And I think we better pray about this one. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I am, I never cease to be amazed at how intentional you are. And at how perfectly you lay out these things before us. Even as we study through Romans, how you have laid out doctrine now leading us into exhortation. You've given us understanding and teaching and now you call us to obedience and faithfulness. You encourage lives of sacrifice. And you have given every reason for us to stand up and be counted among the living sacrifices. Father, as we head into this section, there was a time, I believe, Lord, in our country's history where it would have almost seemed uh, unnecessary. But I recognize this morning that Romans 13 is very necessary for us today. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us understanding to these things. Help us to see clearly your will, your purpose, your desire for us that we might continue to walk in faith as your people until you come. Holy Spirit, guard our hearts and open our minds to truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The First Amendment of the Constitution bears this clause. I will read the whole thing. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Let me highlight again, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment or an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut heard a rumor that the Congregationalist denomination was about to be made 
the state church. That all people would be required by law to be congregationalists. They were very concerned. They dispatched quickly a letter to the president, Thomas Jefferson. In January, on January 1st, 1802, he replied with a letter stating very clearly, the First Amendment, which we just read, has erected a wall of separation between church and state. Now, Jefferson's response was comforting, it was concise, it clarified the confusion. There would be no single dominant state religion. That was none of the government's business. And so the First Amendment built that wall that would keep government out of church. Government separated from the free exercise of faith in this country. Now, of course, there have always been groups trying to subvert the freedom of religion in America. It is not new to our times. Go back to 1853. There was a group that petitioned Congress to separate Christian principles completely from the government. At that time, they wanted the removal of chaplains from the Congress and from the military, saying there should be no religious interference in government work. So the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees began to meet. Yes, even back then, we had committee. They spent nearly a year studying this concern that was brought before them. On May 27, 1854, they responded, quote, Had the people during the Revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one sect, that is, denomination. They went on to write, the U.S. government, mind you, in this age, there is no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the Republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. And as if more clarification was needed, two months later, the Judiciary Committee came out with this statement. The great, vital, and conservative element in our system, the thing that holds our system together, is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith of our founders in the Judeo-Christian ethic was so certain that as I prayed a moment ago, it would almost seem to make these principles, these exhortations in Romans 13 superfluous. Yeah, we don't need to hear that. Paul, thanks for writing that, but we're fine. You don't need to tell us that we need to be in subjection to the governing authorities because our governing authorities in America are right on line. We understand these principles. We live by them. And our own government made comments about the divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a problem, but thank you, Paul, for writing it anyway. And yet, these seven verses of Romans 13 are today once again proving to be a real conundrum of Christian living. I read these and I think even in America, it's a conundrum of how do we weigh these things as we're watching our government do things that would seem to counter the free expression of Christian faith. How do we handle this and deal with this? How did nations for the last 2,000 years, I mean, think about that. 
Christians for 2,000 years had to deal with these words. Had to face the reality that the Apostle Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was saying, look, you need to be in subjection to the government. Well, think about the governments of the past 2,000 years. They have not all been godly institutions, or so they have not seemed. God knew how important this was going to be for us. I believe he had Paul dictate these words, penned by Tertius, but they were dictated by Paul, again, by the Spirit. And as if to underscore its importance, this letter, as you know, Paul's letter was written, this obligation of citizen subjection was sent to the Christians living in the heart of the empire, the very seat of the Roman authority. The emperor of that time was none other than Nero. Nero would reign from 54 to 68 AD. Now, this letter was written and sent before Paul himself was brought before Nero, before he met him. This would come to the church there at Rome before the emperor went on his anti-Christian bender, torching believers and ultimately burning Rome itself and blaming the Christians and the Jews for the burning of Rome. This was before the fiery ordeal that would ultimately consume millions of Christians for nearly 300 years under the wrath of the government of Rome. And this letter was sent prior to that as if preparing the people for exactly what was coming. How were Christians to be in subjection to a government like that? What do people do, Jesus people, when the government goes wrong? How are we to live? How are we to respond? How are we to be citizens in subjection, as Paul calls for here, especially when the authorities force immorality upon us or godless agendas? Friday. I'm sure you've all heard by now. If you haven't, let me just bring you up to speed. The Obama administration, citing Title IX of the Civil Rights Law, sent a letter to every public school in America. You can read the letter. It's posted on the Department of Justice website. This letter is requiring schools. It's not law, mind you. Law is made by Congress. Someone needs to tell the president that. It requires all schools to allow transgender students that is, boys who identify as girls and vice versa, to use bathrooms and locker rooms of their choosing. And we talked about this as something that was being floated in the Washington government right here in our state. Well, now the president has sent this letter, again, to every school in America. They must also be allowed, that is, transgender students... I don't Honestly, how do high school students even know enough about themselves to know? You know... This whole idea, sidetrack, this whole idea of transgender, I think we could call it something else, sexual confusion. And many kids transitioning from childhood into adulthood have confusion in trying to understand and and figure things out. I thought it was, at least at one time, it was our responsibility as an adult to help them into understanding who they are. Created in the image of God... Boys becoming men and girls becoming women as our Creator intended. Well, apparently I missed something along the way. 
They must also be allowed to play on sports teams of their choosing or face lawsuits and loss of federal aid. So now this has come down from the Obama administration to all schools in the country. Parents of kids in public school, you need to be aware of this. That this is now the new rule. So the question is, how are we to live in an increasingly immoral, illogical, unspiritual, and frankly messed up society? Please hear me clearly. I'm not blaming the schools for this. In fact, we have many administrators and teachers in our fellowship. Pray for them. Pray for them to have strength and wisdom and to know how they are to respond to some of the ridiculous things being handed down. By the way, the backlash to this, to this letter, this edict, if you will, from President Obama has been fierce just in two days. States are responding. In, in rebellion to it, saying, absolutely not. We're not going to do this. That is just confusing. It's going to be a, a nightmare. We'll see where this goes. But it does make me wonder, and I'm in the midst of studying these things and thinking about Romans 13, is there a time when civil disobedience or even outright rebellion to the government is acceptable if, in fact, we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities? But we're going to try and sort some of this out this morning. To think it through from a biblical perspective. First, I just want to walk through the passage, and then we'll come back and address a couple of things. Verse 1. Verse 1, Paul says very clearly, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. What if it's Hillary? What if it's Trump? Got news for you. It probably will be. (laughs) Just remember this. As we head into this election cycle, which is only going to get more ugly than it's been so far. Remember Proverbs 21, verse 1, which tells us the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Remember Daniel 2.21. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. The establishment of authority always comes from God. He's the one exerting and working His will in all these things. Now, because of our country's rich Judeo-Christian heritage, many of us... And I say us because I would have in past days wanted to wrap the Bible in the flag. To say the two must be concurrent. Looking to the red, white, and blue for the hope of the world. But i got to be honest, I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see the red, white, and blue as the hope of the world. Except that I see the red blood of Jesus flowing down at Calvary. I see the black and blue bruises on His face. And back. I see the white linens wrapping his dead body. So in that case, yes, the red, the white, and the blue is the hope of the world. I see something else too. I see a golden sash. I see snowy white hair and fiery eyes and burnished bronze feet and a face shining like the sun in all its strength. Go read Revelation chapter 1 and see John's vision of the glorified, resurrected Jesus, the hope of the world. But Romans 13.1 
get this, understand this, is given to all believers under all governments of all nations through all history. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. The word subjection is hupotasso. Hupotasso in the Greek meaning to place or set under as in obedience. It originally was a military term. Those of you in the military would understand it. Hupotasso refers to the chain of command. There is one over you. There may be one under you. You have your place in the chain. But you are subject to whoever is in charge over you. And you answer to that person. And you do as they say. And if you're in battle, you do not question what they say. Your life may depend on it. Hupotasso. In a non-military sense, it refers to a voluntary attitude of acquiescence. That is, giving in. It is assuming a responsibility for and or carrying of a burden to be in subjection under another. Now Jesus came along and in Matthew chapter 5 verse 41 said, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. In other words, subject yourself to that person. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the Jewish crowd must have been buzzing. Is he talking about Rome? Is he referring to that monstrous government that's oppressing our people? You see, you Bible students know according to Roman law, a soldier could compel a citizen could compel anyone truly along the road to carry his bags or his armor for up to one mile. And the person had to comply. Jesus said, go two. If you're compelled to go one, go two. Spend the extra time sharing the gospel. I mean, what a great opportunity. Subjection. And subjection is biblically consistent. Hey, even before Jesus planted his feet on planet earth, The people were always called to be in subjection to the governing authorities. It's biblically consistent. It is historically consistent. God's people have always been subject to this standard. Think about it. Why did God send Moses to Pharaoh? Why didn't he just release his people? Then take them out by acts of might. Ultimately he would. Why send Moses in the first place? Read it, Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. He was sent first to seek governmental permission to leave. Go ask for permission for my people to leave Egypt. Even God in that moment remarkably was subjecting himself to the governmental authority of Pharaoh that he had set up. Seek permission. Keep your finger here. Turn over to the right to... 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just to understand a bit more the consistency of this. And we'll look at more things throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well. But Peter comes along and parallels the teaching of Paul in Romans 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. I like to hear the pages turn. Peter writes... Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. You might want to underscore for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, 
or to governors is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now Peter goes on. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And of course, when Peter wrote that, the king was Nero. Honor Nero? Paul would say in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed. So this is not just a thought that pops into Paul's head at one point writing to the church in Rome. And Paul also would write to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says this. This is great. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When was the last time you prayed for our president? When was the last time you thanked God for our president? Because Paul points out, this is not just about praying for. Oh Lord, I pray for that godless, sick, senseless... No. (laughs) To pray for and to thank God for. Thank you for the establishment, Lord, of the rule of law. Thank you for this person who you have put in place. And God grant them wisdom. And do you pray for in such a manner and even thank God for our leaders? God, thank you so much for our current Congress. Love them. In, in, a, in a country where the attitude is so anti, the Lord comes along and says, be thankful. Pray for. Lift up these names. And someone might say, well, he's not my president. I didn't choose him. He stole the election from Gore. <laughs> for eight years, Democrats said, I didn't choose him. And now for eight years, Republicans have said, I didn't choose him. No, you're right. God did. According to Scripture, according to my understanding, I am subject to authority as established by God. You can go back to Romans 13 if you're not back there. By the way, what did Paul and Silas do when the Philippian authorities threw them into jail? Do you remember? They sang praises to God. What a radical, bizarre thing. They're in the prison, thanking God, singing hymns of praise, praying, Acts 16.25. You might say, well, how am I supposed to pray if the authority is wicked and despotic? Many have been, haven't they? Across 2,000 years? I mean, how are Christians supposed to read Romans 13, living in Syria under Assad? Or living in Iran, as there are many Christians under the Ayatollah's brutal reign. Or living in Russia under Putin. Name a country. Pick a despot. I I could name others. One comes to mind of the 20th century Adolf 
Hitler, how were Germans to respond to this? I can tell you how they did. The German clergy at first loved him. Rallied around him. Hitler, Hitler, he's our man. And even when things began to go very wrong, many of the German clergy turned a blind eye and kept quoting Romans 13. Some did not. Others, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said, we cannot accept this. Others protested. Others rebelled against the rise of that ruler. And of course, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Bonhoeffer did die. And again, when Paul sent this letter, Rome was already suspicious of Christians. After all, they came out of that Jewish sect. And we've had nothing but problems from the Jews. So they're connected there. And they have these weird religious things they do. First of all, they only worship one God. Weird! And they do this thing with bread and wine that's supposed to be blood. Are they carnivorous? What's the deal here? Cannibals? And they didn't trust the Christians. An eye was on them. And they were only a few years ahead of that brutal, horrific persecution. As I said, that would last some 283 years. Where upwards of 7 to perhaps as many as 10 million Christians were martyred simply because they claimed faith in Jesus. Let me give you a modern example. China. China today, and it's interesting, a hundred years, beginning roughly about 1840, the West began to send missionaries into China. Some of those great missionaries, Hudson Taylor among others, whose names you may be familiar with, who went into China, who brought the gospel to China. They worked within the system. They worked among the people. And across a hundred years, there was an estimated 80,000 converts out of a billion people. It's not great. I mean, it's any convert's worth praise in heaven, right? But still, 80,000 out of a billion in a hundred years of effort and labor and work. And then the communist revolution hit in the 1940s and all Western missionaries were driven out. Oh no. All our work. A century of effort. What's going to happen to the church now that we are kicked out? Forty years later, the doors opened a little bit in China again and we began to see what had happened. And in just 40 years, without the Western influence, the church in China and in the Chinese underground had grown to over 50 million. 50 million. The UK Telegraph, check this out, just reported this last week at the present rate China could become the world's most Christian nation reaching 265 million believers by 2030. That's in 15 years, folks. 14. The most Christian nation on the earth could be China. And I read that and I thought back to a concert I had gone to several years ago where Michael Card was the performer and and he made a comment in the middle of the concert concert he said we need to be sending Bibles to China because folks they may someday be sending them to us and I began to think maybe he was right America right now boasts by the most generic standards about 159 million Christians 
China is already close to surpassing that. It's remarkable. What I'm saying is that political climate, no matter how heavy-handed or despotic, cannot sway the work of the Spirit in this world. You cannot stop what God is doing. And so for a believer to be under an oppressive, oppressive regime, okay, if that's where God has me, that's where I'm supposed to do the work. That's where I'm supposed to be engaged. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And and that's true. I mean, you can test it out if you want. Go rob a bank. See what happens. Verse 3. That's the only point you're going to make there from verse 2? For now. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, that's true. Most of us, most of us, I assume, are decent, law-abiding folk who don't intend to engage in law-violational behavior. That's why I now use cruise control. (laughs) It's the only way that I can be sure... (laughs) That I can't get wrapped up in the song that I'm listening to or the conversation that I'm having and my book gets heavier and heavier. But here's the thing where verse 3 is concerned. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. So what's the first thing you do when you see the red and blue flashing lights? (laughs) You slow down. Actually, even before that, you know what the first thing I do is? I look at the speedometer. If I'm going 75 and a 40, it's not good. If I'm going 35 and a 40, I'm like, suck. I'm good. Gang, I, anytime I see a police officer, and I am a huge supporter of our police. In fact, if I do get pulled over, not that it happens a lot, please don't get the wrong idea. If I get pulled over, I will tell the officer, even if he writes me a ticket, thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate you. (laughs) And I do. But I'll tell you what, every time I drive up and down 20, anytime I'm out on I-5, if I see a police car, and you know what I'm talking about. Don't tell me you don't. Your eyes go to the speedometer, your knuckles start to whiten, and a bead of sweat appears on your brow. Oh no. Oh good, he got that guy. I mean, we're like Pavlov's dogs with the police. Pavlov's drivers. See the police? Get into a panic. Paul says, just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. A good Christian is a good citizen. Period. In any culture, in any nation, under any rule, a good Christian is a good citizen. And God desires law and order. He is not a God of confusion. He is not a God of anarchy. He desires order in all things. 
Now, does that get abused? Of course it does. Paul himself had the bruises of Philippi and of Corinth and many other cities and areas to prove that government abused power. Of course it does. No one's questioning that. But the principle remains sound, even in Rome, that we are to be good citizens. That we are to stand under the governmental authority. Read on, verse 4. He says, For it is a minister of God for you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. A minister, the governmental authority is, ready for this, a deacon. That's what God says. They are diakonos. The word minister used twice there is diakonos in the Greek. Do you think of the police as deacons? Hello, deacon officer Bob. God's word calls them God's servants, his civil authority, his diakonos. And he says they don't bear the sword for nothing. Now that's interesting. The word sword there in the Greek, it's a very specific word. It is makara or makaira. And the Machaira was that short, thrusting, lethal sword of the Roman army. They would have their shields, and they all had the Machaira. And it was for killing. That was the purpose of this. So this was not for slicing your cheese. This is for killing. And the Machaira was handed to every governing official, to a procurator, to a governor, upon their installment into office... It was handed to them as a symbol that they now had the governmental authority, if necessary, to take a life. Capital punishment. This is what Paul is talking about. That the government, under God's institution, even bears the right of capital punishment. And yes, please understand this. I've had arguments over this one many times. With friends, with family. And God does, in certain situations, like it or not, approve of capital punishment. He made a covenant. And it was a covenant to all mankind. And it was a covenant that has never been revoked. It was to Noah, the Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God said to Noah, For all humanity, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Oh, but that's, that's the Old Testament, so it's the old law and it's obsolete. Remember, remember, we've talked about this. Of all the covenants God made, only one was limited, and that was the Mosaic Law. This was not the Mosaic Law. This was the Noahic Covenant for all humanity, God's law, and it has never been revoked. Well, I I have a problem with capital punishment. Remember in the New Testament, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's there, and Jesus is there, and Peter has an old rusty sword he got from somewhere, who knows where, and he draws it, and he swings wildly, I won't tell you how I know that, but you can read it. And I mean, he's, he's swinging at the wrong side of the guy's ear. He lops off the guy's ear. Remember what happens with that? And Jesus heals Malchus. In that moment, Jesus said, Matthew 26, 52, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. What is Jesus saying? He knew the murderous intent of Peter's heart. 
He's saying, Peter, if you kill this guy, you are subject to capital punishment. If you kill, you're subject to death yourself. He stated this clearly. The penalty for taking a life, and we're talking about murder. We're not talking about warfare. That's a different conversation we can have another time. We're talking about murder. The punishment, according to God, is execution by the state. He does not bear the sword for nothing. Again, some Christians have a real problem with that. You'll have to take it up with God. Don't argue with me over it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And Paul says clearly, it does not bear the sword, the Machaira, for nothing. It's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath. He gives two reasons here, very important. One, because obviously if you disobey the government, if you do wrong, you're getting punished for it. No one needs that. You don't want that. So you want to maintain a good citizenship and obey the laws because you really don't want to have to go to traffic court and pay that ticket. You don't want to have to be punished. So because of wrath's sake and because violation of the law means it's going to be problematic for you, don't violate it. But then he says this, also for conscience sake. Listen to that. It is necessary to be in subjection for conscience sake. What does that mean? For conscience sake. That's so we can just feel good about ourselves? Listen. You need to tie this back to where Paul began in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 where Paul talks about the renewing of the mind. That's the connection. Our subjection as citizens in this age is part of that process. This is more, this whole section, in fact Romans 12 to the end of the chapter, is about more than living for this age. Those of you who are here Wednesday night, you know what I'm talking about. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But conscience sake has to do with the renewing of the mind. Remember that. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And you know they do. They devote themselves to taxation. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Abolish the IRS! How many candidates said that? The first thing I do when I get into office is I'm going to abolish the IRS. Now listen, I'm no big fan of April 15th. I know for many it's not your favorite day of the year. For some of you it's October because you put it off every year. That's fine. But what did Jesus say about taxation? Matthew twenty two twenty one. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And nobody but nobody knew how to tax like the Romans. When Paul makes this statement, when he says pay your taxes... <laughs> Income tax in Rome was a 10% flat tax. So everybody was subject to the 10% flat tax. Well, some say, well, that's not so bad. Man, if we did that in America, that'd be fantastic. Wait. You also paid a poll tax. For living and breathing in Rome, 
For living on Roman soil and breathing Roman air, everybody paid the poll tax. Women started paying it at the age of 12 all the way to the age of 65. Men had to pay it at the age of 14 all the way to 65. And the Romans knew the difference between men and women, just saying. (laughs) On top of that, they had the ground tax. That was a tenth of all your grain and a fifth of all your wine, if you had grain or wine, come into your house, a tenth and a fifth. That was due to Rome as well. They had a fish tax. That was for fishermen. And the tax was per net, and it was per fish. So perhaps that's why Peter was confused at the miraculous catch of fish. He's like, what are the taxes I'm going to have to pay? There was a cart tax. It was a per-wheel cart tax, which would encourage single-wheel carts all over the empire. If you had two wheels, you paid for each wheel. If you had four wheels, you had to pay for all four wheels. There were road taxes. Every time you traveled on the road, you'd get hit with taxes all along the way. Harbor taxes, customs, that is import and export taxes. And on top of this, Rome farmed out tax collecting. To all the regions and all the areas and the tax collectors you may know could keep anything that they wanted to charge people above and beyond what the Romans charged in terms of taxes. And it was absolutely outrageous. Knowing this, God still required his people to pay their taxes. Well, if I have to pay my taxes, Pastor... How am I going to pay my tithe? I mean, you tell me. It's going to be one or the other. You think God doesn't know? You think God is unaware of your income? You think He doesn't know what your current tax situation is like? Besides the fact, tithing and taxes are two very, very different things. As we talked about last week, tithing is about faithfulness. It's about trusting the Lord. It is about deepening your faith and your trust in God to provide for you no matter what. That's tithing. Taxation is just your obligation as a subject of this country. Based on Romans 13. So which one is it? It's both. You do both. You do the one because it increases your love of the Lord and your trust in the Lord and your faithfulness to the Lord. And you do the other because that's what we have to do. Because every good citizen is a good Christian, and every good Christian is a good citizen if we are to follow the prescriptions given to us by Paul right here. Alright, so there's the seven verses. Why is this all so important? Why, outside of subjection in Israel, I get that, you know, when Israel was the nation, or even Israel is a nation today, you could say God's people, they need to do what God tells them to do in their own government. But why does God care? about subjection in Russia, about subjection in the European Union, about subjection here in America. Why does God care? Let me give you two verses as hints of this. He cares because Ephesians 2.19 says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. He says in Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, God in all of this is developing a holy citizenry. The impact of these things is not just here and now. It is there and then. The impact of how we live our lives now and follow the prescriptions, the exhortations and the encouragements of Paul 
throughout this letter, it all has to do more really with then than it even does with now. Now is dress rehearsal. Now is practice for then. But I'm a little ahead of myself. Let me answer a different question for a moment. Is there a time for civil disobedience? I know this is what you're looking forward to. Is there a time we can resist the government and stand up against it? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Biblically. When obedience to the governing authority results in disobedience to godly authority. Anytime my obedience to man subverts my obedience to God, I must obey God first. I must. That is not optional. The higher standard, the higher law, the higher authority is always God's. And we see multiple examples of this in the Hebrew Scriptures. You can go all the way back to the Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh calls them in and says, I want all you midwives, as the child is being born, if the child is a male on the birthing stool, kill him. Well, the Hebrew midwives were told in Exodus 1.17, it says, They feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. Well, that's, that's subversive. That's rebellious. Exactly. Because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they let the boys live. You want a book that is rife with civil disobedience? Study Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 1 and you see right at the outset these boys, Daniel and his, and his friends, led into the king's court and they're supposed to be eating the king's meat and the king's wine and they look at this and they say, it's not kosher. This is opposed to the law of God for us. And we're told in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel respectfully turned down the offer. He, he went to the ruler over them, the commander over them and said, I, we would request that we not eat this food. For it's against our faith. And the commander said, Dude, you can't do that. If you do that, then the Pharaoh will, or the king will see, here, not the Pharaoh, the king of Babylon, he's going to see that you're wimpy and weak and all these other guys are strong and, and then he'll have my head. This is, you're breaking the law. And Daniel says, Well, try us out. Give us some good veggies. You know? Have Paul mix up something healthy for us. I'm talking about Paul over here, not Paul right here. And we'll be, let's see what happens ten days later. They looked great. They were stronger. You know, God worked through it. But it's so interesting to see Daniel's attitude. They don't just stop eating. They don't just rebel. They respectfully ask to not have to follow that rule. Well, then in Daniel chapter 3, they turn up the heat. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a 60 foot tall image of himself. It says, when the band starts to play, fall down and worship the image. Well, there were three who would not do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where was Daniel? I don't know. Interesting question. But we're told in Daniel 3.16, these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, replied to the king who said, you must worship or be thrown into the furnace. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. To the king. If it be our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And it's a fascinating picture because what they're doing is disobeying and yet accepting the consequence of their disobedience. 
Sometimes we forget about that part. Absolutely, you can disobey. But understand, if you do so, there may be consequences and accept them. Bonhoeffer was thrown into prison and then ultimately was executed. And he knew that was a possibility for disobedience. He accepted that. So here these three boys do that. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel comes back around. We didn't see him in chapter 3. Where was he? I don't know. Maybe on a trip of state or something. Daniel rose to the high position of one out of three commissioners over all of the kingdom of Darius, over Persia now at that time. And one of three, and under him were 120 satraps, and they conspired against Daniel. They figured we can't trap him in anything because he's a man of integrity. A good Christian is a good citizen. They couldn't find anything that they could nail Daniel with, and so they said, ah, wait a minute, he's a man of prayer. So they go to King Darius and they say, hey, we want to just put an edict, O king, may you live forever. We want to put an edict out there that says no one can pray to any god or petition any other man but you for 30 days. Just for 30 days. Because you're such a special guy. And so Darius goes, "Ah, okay, sounds good. Signs the edict. What's Daniel do? What was his response to this satrap trap. He goes home. He opens his windows toward Jerusalem as was his custom every single day and he kneels down and he begins to pray. He defied the law. Daniel broke the law and was thrown into the lion's den. You know the story. Darius, and the king, like Daniel, he comes the next day, Darius, Darius, however you want to say his name, is fine with me. He shows up. He likes Daniel. He calls into the pit, Daniel, are you still in there? I'm sure fooling, ex- expecting to hear, rawr, burp. <laughs> what was the first thing that Daniel said? Listen to this. Daniel 6.21. Oh king, live forever. Now I wouldn't have said that. Oh wimp, who ended up tossing me in here? Oh spineless wonder. No, O king, live forever. He says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found, listen, I was found innocent before him. Wait, he broke the law. Yeah, he broke the stupid law of man, but was innocent in terms of the law of God, which was higher authority. And he says, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Daniel, you broke the law. Rejection of a law of state is no crime when it's because you are a citizen of a higher authority. When you are subjected to a greater authority. In the New Testament, and there are more examples in the Old, we don't have time for right now. Acts chapter 3 and 4, the apostles are commanded by Jewish edict, which was the law in Jerusalem. Not to speak anymore in the name of Yeshua. Did they obey that law? No. In fact, in the next chapter, they get called back into the Sanhedrin before the council because they just keep doing it. And their response is, Acts 5.29, and this is key, we must obey God rather than men. So if there's a conflict, we're going to obey God. They go on to say in Acts 5.32, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. That's where our obedience lies. 
And yes, we obey the governing authorities even as much as we obey the Lord. But when those laws are contradictory or opposed to the laws of God, we do not obey the laws of man. We instead turn to the laws of God. We obey Him. That's why Paul says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. One more example. Jesus stands before Pilate. And He is not speaking. And Pilate is commanding him to give answer. And Jesus is not saying a word. And Pilate finally says in John 19.10, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless what? Unless it had been given to you from above. Unless God gave it. That's where your authority is in all of this, Pilate. But if governmental authority, if it comes from God, why are so many governments corrupt? I'll just give you a one-verse answer, and there are two aspects of it. 1 John chapter, 9, chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John five nineteen, which tells us, We know that we are of God. That's the first point. We know that we are of God. So we recognize corruption anytime it happens. It becomes obvious. It becomes clear. We see it immediately because we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why governments get corrupt. That's why it goes wrong. God establishes government for the rule of law that there not be anarchy on the earth and yet governments do become corrupted because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we who are of the Lord see this and therein lies the conflict. But here's the application. As Christians, today, to be a Christian is to hold citizenship in a better country. I've told you so many times, I mean, we've been around this, this conversation much over the last several years as we've watched things in America turn in directions we never thought it would. I've told you, I've always been proud of my country. I have always been an American. You know, uh, I love the red, white, and blue. I, I sang the songs. I grew up a patriot. I love my country. I don't love what I'm seeing. But I am, before an American citizen, I am a citizen of the coming kingdom. And that trumps this one. Pardon me for the word. What other word is there? (laughs) I am a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And that overrules all other citizenship. And my citizenship as an American is is based on my citizenship in heaven. And my citizenship as an American, my behavior and my, my acceptance and my subjection to the laws of man is because I'm a citizen of the coming kingdom. And we need to understand how important that truly is. Two final things, and we're done this morning. Two reasons why this mentality is so vital. And by the way, we spent a long time on this Wednesday night trying to grasp the whole reason, really, for the entire section of encouragement and exhortation, beginning in Romans 12. There are two reasons we've got to consider and understand and think of ourselves as citizens of the coming kingdom. Number one, it is the proclamation of the gospel of that kingdom. 
I am a citizen of the kingdom to come. Therefore, I am here and now to proclaim the gospel. Paul used his Roman citizenship for the gospel. Used it wisely many times. We see him use it in Philippi for the sake of the gospel. We see him in Corinth. Thrown before the the procurator there, Galileo, uses his Roman citizenship there. We see him use his Roman citizenship to, to get audience ultimately before Nero himself. Why? Because Paul was about the proclamation of the gospel of the coming kingdom. So he used his current citizenship for that. Daniel did the same thing. He used his Babylonian and then his Persian citizenship as a prophet of God. He worked in the government system, corrupt, trust me, corrupt government system, and Daniel worked within that system as a prophet. What are you saying? I'm saying use your citizenship for the kingdom. Use your citizenship today as an American citizen, or really anywhere in the world, wherever a person is a citizen, use that citizenship for the kingdom. For us, we are to use our freedoms as they last as long as we have them, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Christian citizens, that's why we are here. That's why we're Americans. And I think sometimes we forget the fact that God has given us the freedoms that we have to proclaim the gospel. No, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I will. I love y'all very much, and, and I don't I don't typically like to hand out guilt trips, but I want to pass out one today. We are called to use our freedoms for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To live our we are free. Do you realize the freedom we have even to be gathered here right now? That that is not the way it is in many countries in the world. And yet how early do we show up for movies? To make sure we get our seat, our popcorn, and our Coke in time for the movie to start. Compared to in church, and it's every church, and it's every service, when we finish worship at the bridge, most of us have all have finally come in and shown up. What does that say to God? And I, you know, let me first of all say to those who are coming from Guimas, you get a pass because you can't even get over here before then. I understand it. The rest of you, no pass. We have the freedom to worship God and we can't get here. When it starts, we start at 8 o'clock. If you knew that the Avengers was playing at 7.20, when would you be there? Oh, we normally show up about halfway into the movie, you know, because you guys, we get there for the previews for crying out loud. I don't want to miss those. I want to be there for the first look. So that's all the guilt I'm going to hand out. There you go. Enjoy. I just, I just think we're missing it. When we have the freedom that we have to do what we're doing right here and we don't do it. We are right now free citizens to take in the gospel, to worship the king, to live by the gospel, and to proclaim it constantly. But there's another essential reason to being a future thinking citizen regarding the laws of this land. By the way, I'm going to hammer on second service just like I just did here, so don't feel bad. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I've told you that before. (laughs) 
Here's the other reason why it's so important that we understand our subjection as citizens to this country right now. Are you all aware of what's been happening in Anacortes this weekend? Okay, everybody was gearing up for a big protest. Apparently it's been kind of pathetic. I don't know. I, I, you know I've seen a few little things driving by some people out on the railroad track, which is really funny. Because they're all camped out on the railroad track to stop the trains that aren't going to run again until Wednesday. So, <laughs> hope you brought a bed pad. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so there's this protest going on. Break free Pacific Northwest. I read the informational flyer. Here are a few things that are said on the flyer. Made up of environmental and social justice organizations from Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho, this coalition is mobilizing against the Shell and Tesoro refineries in Anacor. You evil refinery workers. I just added that part. They write, We believe that the urgency of the climate crisis demands immediate action. That locally and globally, governments have failed to put in place the necessary protections and policies to ensure the survival of our communities and our ecosystems. Never mind that shutting down the refineries would have a dramatically painful impact on our community. They say, we are committed to working for a just transition to a post-fossil fuel economy. Now, I'm making fun of this. I am. I, I fully, I know I am. And there's a reason. Hang with me just long enough to understand what that is. What was the seminal message of Jesus Christ for this age in which we live? He came on the scene, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus never spoke of fossil fuels. My friends, if the kingdom does not set your life's agenda, something else will. If your focus is not the coming kingdom and the glory of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, something else is going to be your agenda. It's how we function as humans. I've got to have something to do. So I will either proclaim the kingdom or I will proclaim the end of fossil fuels. But I'm going to find an agenda. And that's what we see going on with Break Free Pacific Northwest. Hey, I'm not even saying these are bad people. They have an agenda. They have something they believe in. They want to stand for it. They want to fight for it. And it's complete lunacy. How can you say that? Because as we talked about Wednesday... Life right now in this age is all about the preparation of the kingdom. Every exhortation in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, through the end of the chapter, every exhortation of Paul is kingdom focused. It's so that as we live now, we would understand we proclaim the gospel and we prepare for the kingdom. That's why he has us in subjection to the governing authorities. If the coming age is not in your sights, then your vision is going to get cloudy and ultimately blind. Because we know the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Titus chapter 2 verse 2, we are instructed, we are kingdom citizens, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires... And live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age right now. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Want to save the world? 
Want to be a part of a coalition of people living for something that will last eternally? See, John says in 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away and also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What I'm saying is this, you can protest refineries, but the oil is ultimately going to burn. You can stir up the grass roots for a fight, but the grass of the field, which is alive today, tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Jesus said, Matthew 6.30, you can try to transition as your life's agenda to a post-fossil fuel economy, but you will not save the form of this world. 1 Corinthians 7.31 is passing away, and you can't stop it. And here's the key. Romans 12.2, look at it. Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul says, Do not be conformed to this age. Well, Rick, my Bible says world. The word is eon in the Greek. Do not be conformed to this age. This is the substance. It was in the teaching. And if you weren't here Wednesday night, please go back and listen. It is vital, I believe, to our Christian lives. Not my teaching, Paul's teaching here. God's teaching in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this age. Break free Pacific Northwest is by self-definition all about this age. That's their whole point. I mean, isn't it? Am, Am I missing something? It's all about saving this age. And it does not take into account the kingdom or God's plan for global renewal that He will work out. This weekend's protests in Anacortes, they are like so many protests, in essence, useless. And so is Christian living, if we're living for this age. How many Christians read Romans 12, 13 and on, so they can have a better life in this age? How many of us show up at church because, well, it helps me right now in my life. If that is it, if we're just trying to be better citizens, we're missing it. This is not about this age. This is preparing every one of us for the next age. The governmental authority, yes, of the next age. Don't be conformed to this one. God wants us to understand citizenship so that as we come into the kingdom, we get it. We have functioned by it. We understand the rule of law. Don't be conformed to this age. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, Paul says, what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that is not sedition or rebellion. Being transformed as a citizen of heaven only makes me a better citizen in any country on earth right now. The point of the whole thing is the coming kingdom. Like Daniel, we respectfully submit to the laws of the land as we can, except when those laws conflict with the higher laws of God. And then we accept the consequence. If that means the lion's den, if that means the furnace, okay. But I am being prepared for a better country. I am being prepared for a kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 6. We will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So be in subjection to the governing authorities because you will be the governing authority. There was a letter written 
in the second century by a guy named Mathetes to another guy named Diognetus. And it so well sums up what we're talking about here today. Listen to this. He writes, Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities. Wherever chance has put them, they follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, they suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and have children, just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. Second century. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They're passing their days on earth, but as citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws, they go beyond the laws, but they go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but they're persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death, and they gain life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored, yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, Yet they are cleared. They're mocked, blessed in return. They're treated outrageously and yet behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked as aliens. They are persecuted. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. And listen, to put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to this world. The soul is spread throughout all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of this world. The soul is in the body, but is not of the body. Christians are in the world, but they are not of the world. Luke 12.32, Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Father, Teach us and train us and prepare us, even as you exhort us, to look forward and to live forward. That we would see our lives and the sanctification that you're working in and among us as preparation for the kingdom, for that great reality that is to come. Change our hearts, change our minds, and make us your people, your citizens, in the name of Jesus. Amen.